0: Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the incredible way you displayed your power over over those who oppress your people at the Red Sea, how you rescued your people, how you fought for them single-handed. Father, please help us to see the glory of these events and take them to heart. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, if you are a a Christian, what are the battles or struggles where you feel most like giving up on following Jesus? What are the, the struggles where you're most tempted to think that you would be better blending back into the world around you? I wonder, where do you fear the world or the flesh or the devil most, and find it hardest to fear God and trust that he holds you fast and that he fights for you. For me, I confess that one of the things uh, in recent times that has most often made me think of turning back, at, at least from the call to being a pastor, if not more, is the threat of, of growing public and institutional opposition to Christianity from secular society. It was the prospect of being the one in the pulpit, having to deliver both the popular and the unpopular parts of biblical teaching, and becoming an obvious target for hatred as a result. That kind of made me want to shrink back. Wouldn't it... Just be so much easier to keep my head down, to keep a low profile, to shut up and blend in. Now, there are battles in the Christian life which make us think of turning back. Whether those are public or family opposition, or perhaps the crushing shame of sinful habits, which we just can't seem to break free of which we feel must exclude us from God's presence in the church. And whether we realise it or not, behind these attacks stands the devil, our greatest enemy. And if we're in any doubt about that truth, we read in 1 Peter 5 in verse 8, that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour He would love to tear us out of Jesus's hands and enslave us once again to sin and fear. Some of us will be more aware of the spiritual dimension of the the battles we face and the attacks we're under. But when those battles come, we have something extraordinary to look back on. To help us trust our God and Saviour, that he is with us, that he fights for us, and that he will not let us be snatched out of his hands. These events that we've just read in Exodus 13 to 14 were designed and recorded to instil that kind of trust in God's people for the hard road ahead of them. The message of this passage is trust the God who fought for you. Trust the God who fought for you. And the result should be no different for us today. So let's see how. So where we pick up the story in 13 verse 17, Israel has been ransomed and delivered from God's judgment on Egypt By the blood of sacrificial lambs. That was the Passover. We we, we read and heard about that last week. But now they are still under threat from their Egyptian slave masters. They are still in Egyptian territory. They're not in the promised land of Canaan yet. And they have not totally escaped Pharaoh. The king crowned with a serpent who points us back to that ancient serpent, the devil who wants to destroy God's plans and keep people from ever belonging to him. So God's promises hang in the balance. At 13 verse 17. God has redeemed Israel, but can he keep them as his own? Will he really be their God, their only king, without any other hostile forces ruling over them? Will they fully become the new humanity promised ever since the time of Abraham, through whom God will begin to reverse the effects of the fall on the world? Undoing sin and curse and corruption and breaking the devil's power to bring blessing to all nations. This is like the moment in every good action film where the hero's plans seem to be working And they seem to be winning, but you just know that something has got to go wrong and you've no idea how they're going to save the day. The difference is the Lord deliberately orchestrates things so that they appear to go wrong. He could have led Israel out of Egypt quickly on the most direct road to Canaan. But look at 14 verse 2 again. God tells them to turn back. They are no longer leaving Egypt, but trudging further into the Egyptian desert. And worse still, he makes them camp between the sea and a mountain. It sounds like a complete dead end. It's a bit like trying to drive from Oxford to London, but turning north up the M40 towards Northampton. This seems totally bizarre, but God has a reason. He considers in in verse 17 that if the people face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Though Israel is marching out boldly, in 14 verse 8 and ready for battle we see in 13 verse 18 god knows that they are weak and easily scared they don't they don't yet trust their god to fight with them and for them they're not actually ready to enter battle signs or anyone else and we need to look at 14 verse 10 to see they, they, they only get a glimpse of trouble when Pharaoh in the distance and they are utterly terrified and they forget all the mighty deeds that God has worked for their deliverance. The Lord knows how weak and prone to doubt his people are. So he leads Israel into a dead end, summons Pharaoh in pursuit, hardening his heart deliberately to put Israel in a position where they are completely helpless, a position where they cannot fight for themselves. It's a bit like the British Army at Dunkirk in 1940. If you know the history or you saw Christopher Nolan's brilliant film back in 2017, the army was helpless, stranded on the beach in France with their backs to the sea and the German army closing in all around them. They could do nothing to save themselves. They could only watch, wait, and hope that the British Admiralty was organising a rescue mission. And similarly, God puts Israel in a position where all they can do is watch in silence, then walk on, Well, he single-handedly fights for them. Do you see that in 14 verses 13 to 14? Moses says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So why does God lead the Israelites into this terrifying situation? He does it so that they will see his mighty power as he single handedly fights for them. And what good will this achieve? Firstly, he will gain glory over the Egyptians as he repeats twice in 14 verse 4 and verse 8, proving that he is the awesome creator and covenant keeping God of Israel. And no one can snatch his beloved blood-bought people out of his hands. And as a result, Israel will learn to trust and fear Yahweh, their God, and Moses, his servant. That's what this is about. Yahweh displaying his glory in a stunning, miraculous and total victory over the Egyptians so that everyone will see that no one can snatch his redeemed people out of his hands. And then his people will learn to trust him. This is exactly what happens. Let me highlight three key details in the narrative for you. So firstly, Yahweh displays his glory as the only true and sovereign God of heaven and earth in a stunning miracle. Look again at 14 verses 21 to 22. The Lord drives back the sea with a strong east wind and turns it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. With a wall of water on their right and their left. This is repeated in verse 14, verse 29. We are meant to take note. Even though the Lord used apparently natural means with this strong east wind, the timing and the scale of what happened show it to be a complete miracle. Can you imagine that for a moment? You may have seen photos or film of a tsunami, which is a terrible thing. But can you imagine that wall of water looming over you, yet still held back? Can you imagine the awesome and terrifying reality of walking along a seabed with that roaring, quivering mass on either side of you? which you have absolutely no power to control, but which is like putty in the Lord's hands. I think the language here is meant to remind us of creation. In Genesis 1, in verses uh, 6 to 9, where God separates the waters to create sky, sea and sky and then divides the waters, sorry, gathers the waters into one place to leave dry land. It's the same word. I think it's also meant to remind us of Noah's flood, where in, in Genesis 8 verse 1, God sends a wind over the earth to make the waters recede and eventually dry ground appears again. Just like creation and the aftermath of Noah's flood, The parting of the Red Sea is a new beginning. Out of the waters of chaos and judgment come life for a new humanity through the God who wants to fill and bless the earth. Yahweh displays his glory as the only true and sovereign God of heaven and earth through this stunning creation-like miracle secondly the lord fights for his people and gains total victory over egypt do you remember in um, 14 verse 14 again moses said the lord will fight for you you need only to be still well that's exactly what happens In 14 verses 19 to 20, God's presence in the Pillar of cloud moves to stand between the Egyptian army and Israel throughout the night while he drives back the sea. It's like a repeat of the ninth plague. He gives light to his people but plunges the Egyptians into darkness. He leaves us in no doubt about who he favours and who his judgment is upon. And in verses 24 to 25, the Egyptians finally get the message. As God throws them into confusion and seems to make their chariot wheels stick in the mud, they cry out in panic. The Lord is fighting for Israel against Egypt. And he fights with terrifying, awesome power as he sweeps the waters of the sea back over their heads. Now, of course, Moses played a part in all this, mediating between God and the people. And there'll be more to say about Moses later in this sermon series. But ultimately, it is the Lord who is fighting. He fights single handedly. The Israelites have only to watch and walk on. Yahweh fights for his people and the victory is total. I wonder if you notice how many times and ways the text emphasizes that the whole of Pharaoh's army was present. I counted nine variations from 14 verse four onwards, particularly this phrase, Pharaoh and his army, his chariots and his horsemen. It's repeated again and again. Egypt was the great superpower of the day. And their chariots were the cream of military hardware. And the whole army was after Israel. A bit like a modern armored regiment of battle tanks, chasing down a bunch of school kids armed only with air rifles. Yet how many of the Egyptian soldiers survived? Look at 14 verse 28 again. Not a single one. Yahweh fights for his people and gains total victory over Egypt. As 14 verse 30 says, he saves Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. No one else. They don't save themselves, not even halfway. He saves them. And he saves them so completely, according to verse 13, that Israel will never see this Pharaoh or his army again. Israel will not be snatched back into slavery. Yahweh's blood-bought people now belong completely to him. And finally, what's the happy result of all this? Look again at verse 31 with me. When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. The fear that Yahweh foresaw in 13 verse 7 has been overcome, for now at least. The people know that the Lord, their God, creator of heaven and earth, truly wants to keep his covenant with Abraham, to be their God, to have them as his people. They know that he loves them, cares for them, protects them, and will not let anyone snatch them out of his hand. In fact, the only people who could send them back into slavery were themselves if they stopped fearing and trusting God and turned away from him and broke his covenant. Now, there's so much more we could say about this passage. But the key question now is, what does it mean for us? And in short, I want to say it means trust the God who fought for us. They're in a few important ways. Not much has changed. For everyone listening who trusts in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, we now belong to the same God. Even if we're Gentiles by birth, we have been grafted into God's ancient people Israel through faith in Jesus and through spiritual rebirth. You can read about that in Romans 11 if it sounds unfamiliar or bizarre. So, for all of us who trust in Jesus as Lord, whether Jew or Gentile, the God of Exodus 13 to 14 is our God. This God who redeems his people from slavery and wrath at the cost of blood and then fights single handedly to ensure that no one snatches them out of his hand is our God, and he is just as committed to us now as he was then. We should look back on the parting of the Red Sea and see it as commitment to us. If this rescue had not taken place, there would be no people of God. The devil would still hold God's people, Abraham's children, in physical as well as spiritual slavery. So thank God, thank him for keeping his promises, that he is faithful and merciful, that he did not leave humanity in the darkness we deserve. And trust him. Trust him because he demonstrated his power and his commitment to his people in such an obvious and unmissable way. Israel contributed nothing to their deliverance. God single-handedly fought for them through this great miracle. So look back at the parting of the Red Sea and trust the God who fought not just for ethnic Israel back then, but for you and me. And finally, there is another way we can look back to the parting of the Red Sea. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 2 that Israel was baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's, He's talking about this passage, the parting of the Red Sea. When the people passed through the sea, it was a type of baptism. And it tells us much about the significance of Christian baptism. If you are a baptised follower of Jesus, the events of Exodus 13 to 14 are a vivid and precious picture of what has happened to you, not physically, but spiritually. Paul tells us in Romans 6, in verses 1 to 14, that baptism symbolises what has happened to us through faith in Jesus. By faith... Our old selves, enslaved to sin, have died at the cross with Jesus. As I went down into the waters of baptism nine years ago, it affirmed to me that my old self had gone down to death with Jesus. It was buried, destroyed, And as I came up out of the water, it affirmed to me that I had been raised with Jesus to share in his new resurrection life. I no longer belonged to the devil. I am no longer ruled by sin. I now belong to God through Jesus. He has single-handedly rescued me through the mighty victory of the cross. Do you see the parallels between Israel's rescue through the Red Sea and Christian baptism? But I don't just want to draw parallels. We don't move on and forget the parting of the Red Sea just because we've got something else to look back on. No. Israel's rescue through the Red Sea helps us to understand our own baptisms better. Our baptisms might seem abstract because they speak of spiritual rather than physical realities. But the parting of the Red Sea helps us to see God's rescue from slavery and the devil in vivid, high-definition colour. For instance, have you ever thought of slavery to sin as something as terrible, degrading, humiliating, and abusive as Pharaoh's treatment of Israel in Egypt? Have you ever imagined the demands of sin upon you, like the demands of Pharaoh, to make the full quota of bricks without providing straw? This was something utterly impossible. Yet it was accompanied by cruel, mocking whips and beating. They were kicked when they were down. Have you ever considered that the devil's desire to damn your soul for eternity in hell was as overpowering and as terrifying as a cruel and mighty army bearing down on you with unstoppable force while you cowered in the corner? with your back to the wall? And have you considered that Christ's victory over the devil and sin was as complete, as overwhelming, as glorious, as miraculous, as Pharaoh's utter defeat and humiliation in the Red Sea? As we look back at God's rescue at the Red Sea, It helps us see just how great and glorious his single-handed rescue of us at the cross was. And it helps us to see the precious and beautiful significance of what has happened to us by faith in Jesus as affirmed by our baptisms. So the application of this passage is really very simple. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, rejoice that the God you follow today is the same God who fought so mightily for his people in Moses' day. Rejoice. And then remember the events of the Red Sea and remember your baptism, which the Exodus so vividly explains for us. And as you remember them, Trust that Christ has single-handedly fought to free you from slavery to sin and from the devil, once and for all. No one, not even the devil, can snatch you out of his hand. You belong wholly and irrevocably to him. So remember your baptism and the Red Sea with joy. And if you haven't, if, so if you believe but haven't been baptized, please email the church office or speak to me or Matt directly. Don't hang about. Baptism is for your comfort, as a precious affirmation from Christ Himself that you have joined the exodus of His people. So rejoice. Remember the Red Sea and your baptism. And finally, look at the battles you face today. The ones that make you want to give up on following Jesus. And trust that you are safe. The one who single-handedly fought for you then will never cease to fight for you now. Like the Israelites walking through the heart of the Red Sea. You only need to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Don't turn back. Trust the God who fought for you. Let me pray. Dear Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much that you have displayed your power, your might, in such glorious and vivid and unmistakable ways that we see in the parting of the Red Sea, in the safe delivery of your people, the overwhelming of Pharaoh, our own deliverance. Heavenly Father, thank you that through your mighty acts of rescue, through which you have single-handedly fought for us, at the Red Sea and at the cross, no one can snatch us out of your hand. Thank you that we are secure in your grasp. Please, Lord, help us to look back on these events and on our own baptisms with gladness. And like the Israelites, to trust you. Lord, help us to trust you who fought for us then, that you will fight for us now. And Lord, when we are most afraid, even then, help us, please, to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Not to give way to fear, but to press on towards our home in glory. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.